Before this week's show, we have an exciting announcement to make. We are partnering up with Gold Medal Squared. GMS is a great organization who we've learned stolen a lot from, so we're thrilled to have the opportunity to work directly with them to produce this podcast. We'll be able to spread the word to a much wider audience and make the podcast even better. So, welcome to Coach Your Brains Out by Gold Medal Squared. Welcome to Coach Your Brains Out, the show that explores learning from the top minds in volleyball and beyond. With your hosts, John Mayer, Billy Allen, Andrew Fuller, and Nils Nielsen. Today, we're excited for the opportunity to learn from the great Jim McLaughlin. Jim, thanks for joining us. John, I appreciate it. Billy, thank you. Our topic for today is teaching. Before we get into that, can you update us on what you've been up to uh, recently, the last year or so? Well, uh, you guys know I retired, um, but my back is getting better. I'm not out, not out of the woods yet. But, John, Billy, I kind of feel like a player. You know, I work out every day. I do my rehab, and there are good days, bad days. But, <clears throat> you know, you stick to it. You stay with it. You get kind of down the road. And you look back and you've made a ton of improvement. So I'm doing way better. Uh, I just got cleared to do a fast walk, slow jog. I got cleared to swing a golf club at about 50, 60%. So things are good. Um, but I'm still, I'm coaching a little bit. You know, when I decided to retire, um, I got some calls. And coaches called me, they emailed me, some came by my house, and and they asked me if I would consider being a consultant or maybe even a mentor. And the more that I talked to them and started listening to them, you know, I got pretty intrigued with helping them if I could. And some club directors reached out and said, would you work with our players and coaches? But You know, just I look back at my career and I always wanted to learn and I wanted to increase my pace of learning, just increase the learning curve. And for me, one of the ways that I did that was to find really good mentors, you know, that had tremendous passion, that were that had done some great things and people that were humble and people that I wanted to be like. And, you know, I found Carl and Carl taught me everything, you know, and I learned from Beale and I learned from Dumphy and I learned from some of the great ones, but so I'm kind of getting into this and I really like it. Um, and I'm intrigued with it and I feel like I can make a difference, but maybe one of my goals now is to see if, uh, if I could be a mentor like Carl was to me for some of these other coaches. So it's, it's kind of fun for me. We're, we're excited for you to mentor us today. Uh, so please, uh, teach us a bunch and we're going to talk about teaching. So I guess first off, do you see, is there a difference between teaching and coaching? Well, I always considered myself as a coach, a teacher. And so, you know, I wanted to follow the laws of learning as closely as I could. You know, the thing that's hard, John, is in our country, there's no coaching school like med school or business school or engineering or those things. So, we tend to learn from the people that taught us. And uh, I was lucky that I hung around with McGowan and Beal and Dumphy and those guys, uh, specifically Carl, 
kind of planted in me these seeds of research and uh, some science and being able to, you know, offer these kids the best experience in terms of transfer and helping them get to game day. So, uh, yeah, I think, you know, maybe in coaching, it's different in that you're working with some emotions, you're learning how to push people's limits, uh, you're trying to keep a safe environment. Uh, you know, you don't do that in history or you don't do that in physics, but uh, sure, some of the principles overlap, absolutely. Jim, we're going to start with talking about practice planning. How long do you usually spend on a typical practice plan? Well, early in my career, I would spend two hours, maybe two hours and 15 minutes, and uh, I thought deeply about it. Um, and then I was changing things when I was going into the gym. I wanted to figure out a better way to get across to the to the players. Uh, Carl talked me into being a little bit more systematic in, uh, you know, not just, I don't know, giving them an equal amount of repetitions to each player, which simplified the process for me. But I still wanted to have um, the kids to understand exactly what we were working on when we were there training. So you were saying sometimes you'd have a lesson plan, but you'd kind of go kind of flow off of it based on what you were seeing in the gym? Or were you pretty strict with that lesson plan? Well, I got better at it as I was coaching for many, many years. Uh, I got, I became a better teacher. I wrote better lessons. I wrote, uh, I gave better feedback. So I just got better in the whole process of coaching. Uh, part of that process is, you know, writing these activities and then sequencing these activities. Um, that was important for me. I could see uh, the kids actually retain things and recall things faster, the better we coach them. Um, and so I experimented with that a little bit um, as I was teaching. And as you, as you kept progressing, would you find, would you spend more time on like drill construction or is it more on the sort of feedback or the focus of the drill? Yeah, I think that's the deal. Um, at some point as a coach, you get away from the drills and a drill is just a drill. You could use a drill for a number of things you want to get in place, but really what separates great coaches is, uh, their attention to, and their awareness in the moment of teaching, um, and getting their kids to have that awareness um, and that attitude, that mental attitude when they're learning. So that's about, you know, seeing things right, uh, knowing what you want to get in place. It's also about a focus, staying on task, uh, and then giving good feedback. Feedback is the single most important element in learning. And you have to know when to give feedback, when to back off. You have to know when to uh, help the kid kind of solve the problem on their own a little bit. Um, so it's a complex function, but it's really a wonderful thing as you uh, get better at it. Can you dive more into that and some tips on what good feedback sounds like? Well, you know, we're not, you can get into a habit as a coach where you become an error detector and you're just kind of 
telling them what they're doing wrong. And I don't think that's really teaching uh, at the highest level. I think there's a, a model, you know, there's a presentation, a goal presentation of this is what we want you to do. And here's why we want you to do it. You know how you'll have a job, you know why you'll be the boss. I think telling kids why is really important. Um, and then getting them to start to self-regulate a little bit and have a higher awareness and understanding of what we're doing and why we're doing it is really important. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, and I guess having giving them awareness of why they're doing that. Um, I guess, is that the beginning of your practice? Do you go through the lesson plan with them and explain kind of why you're doing each drill? For sure. And then they learn to read the board. You know, they come in from their day. They've got classes. Uh, they have good days, medium days, bad days. But they learn how to kind of leave it at the door and come in and uh, and get ready to really train and to work. You know, practice is work. It's not play. Uh you know, and to get your get yourself into it at a level where you're consumed by it, and and then all of a sudden two and a half hours is over before you know it, uh, is a skill that you have to learn how to. Uh, I don't know. It's got to become part of you as an athlete. But the kids come in. They read the board. They start to do their individual routines. That can be somewhat specific. That can be med balls. That can be armbands. Uh, that can be by position. And they're just getting their mind ready, their heart ready, and their bodies ready to learn and take their game to another level. Um, and then we get into a little bit of setter tutor and some tutoring by position. And then we'll do a skill warm up. And then we get into the body of the practice where we're playing. And you guys know that the bigger the game, the fewer the reps, but the game teaches the game. And so we have to play a lot and, uh, and uh, put those kids in those situations. And then we've got to test them. And we've got to help them learn how to solve problems because that's really the deal. Um, you know, my goal when we walked into the gym, uh, I, I wanted the kids to understand before we even got in there what winning is. You know, it's you guys, it's not like, you know, somebody goes and watches John Mayer and Billy on the beach and they think they know what you guys do and they don't know. Or somebody reads an article on you guys and they think they know, they don't know. And I always wanted my kids to understand how fragile winning is. You know, the boosters get into it and they just take it for granted when you start winning a lot. But there are three phases that I wanted the kids to understand. And it's really a good mindset for them that when they come into practice, the first phase is just overcoming weaknesses, just changing, getting a little bit better. And if you're doing that, you're making progress, you're improving, you're changing, you're winning. And those things are critical. And so you're kind of in your own deal. I got to improve because I have a role. I'm going to expand my role, but I've got to get better every day. The second thing is more of a team thing. And we've got to learn how to solve problems together because, you know, when you play in a gnarly match and you, you know, you want to play in these high intensity matches, 
well, then you're going to have to have high intensity practices and you're going to have to solve problems because when you get to the match, you're overcoming adversity, you're learning how to solve problems. The problem with problems is people tend to look at them as, hey, a problem keeps me from getting to where I want to go. And a real athlete, a mature athlete, an athlete that has tremendous awareness understands if I can solve this problem, I can be on the edge of my ability. I'm going places I've never been. And so they start to understand problems are good if we can solve them. And then the third thing is, Sorry, you know, when it, Jim, real fast, how do, you, how do you get them to solve, like, how do you get them to that point? Um, well, you're, the game creates problems. You know, there's a, a team gets hot. I, I had this conversation with the coach the other day. And he said to me, you know, Jim, you always focused on defense. And I said, no, I didn't. He said, but you guys were always so good defensively. Your defensive package put so much pressure on teams. But then, you know, John, there's a time where you're going to play a team and you can play defense at a high level, but they're still scoring because they're getting good swings. They're in rhythm. And so you still have to be able to side out with them and match them in terms of their side out. Just understanding that and solving these problems and then taking advantage when you create some opportunities and understanding we're in a battle, we're going to have to convert at a little higher percentage, is I got to solve that problem or I'm not going to win the match. Or we're not passing it standard, so what do we do? Do we lose the match? No, we're going to have to hit the left side better. I remember when Kevin Barnett did that in Greece. You know, Doug's team wasn't passing at standard, and we came back because of Barnett taking big-time swings on the left side off the hands. And uh, he solved the problem, the passing problem. So we have problems when we're playing. You don't always just play in the zone. Otherwise, let's get in the zone every time. And you learn how to deal with situations and solve them. But... And then the last thing is, you know, in anything in life, you, you do your job well, you're okay, but not in sports. You know, you can play well and lose. You got to make plays. You got to make a play that can turn the match or make one play. For an example, Mike Johnson is a friend of mine called me and said, Jim, we beat him in the side out. We beat him in this. We beat him in that. I go, hey, Mike, I watched the fifth game. They made two plays you guys didn't make. And I think as a coach, you're teaching players that, how to make plays. And so what we do is hard, and winning is freaking hard. So, but it's awesome. I mean, what makes it hard makes it great. So uh, I don't know. There's a lot to it. The third phase is making plays, and that might be in crunch time, coming up with something big. How do you teach that from a mindset perspective with your players? Well, first of all, is understanding that we're going to have to make plays. You know, we put them into conditions that were a little bit tougher where we play games 22-22 with rules. Uh, and you can't miss a serve. You can't hit into the block. You can't hit out of bounds or the game's over. And they start to understand those conditions. And I've had players go, Jim, that's not real realistic. Sure it is. If it's, we can't miss a serve at 22-22. And so we have to operate in those conditions. Another one is serving. You know, you look at the best serving teams in the world, they miss around 10% of their serves, maybe in the men's a little more because of the jump serve. 
but you've got to operate in those conditions. And so if you pass some tests, let's say you serve six and miss one, and then you serve six and you can't miss any, and then you serve six and miss one, that's 18 serves, two errors is 11% errors. So, you know, at some point you need to meet those standards with great regularity. Uh, but then it comes down to making one play. Uh, I mean, in all the big matches I've been in, I can almost remember one play that turned the match. And so you got to play that every play, like it has the life of its own. And, uh, and, and, and that's, that's, that's not human nature. That's hard. And you mentioned during your, like how you break a practice down, uh, you had a skill warm-up. Um, can you give us an example of what that looks like? Yeah. Um, we'd come in and do exchange on two courts, just get lots of touches. It's not ballistic. We're slowly warming up, you know, uh, We'd do some nevs. We called it nevs after Bill Neville. <clears throat> you know, you dig a ball, you get a point. You kill a ball, you get a point. You hit a ball out of bounds, you get air. And we just start warming up, getting lots of touches. Uh, I don't know. We had four or five, six drills we used, and we alternated them. Um, and it was about a 15-minute, 20-minute activity. But it was way better, John. It was way better, Billy, than running around the court doing push-ups and sit-ups. And, uh, and I remember way back when I played on the beach, uh, we, didn't, we, just, we started hitting the ball at each other and started warming up, hitting shots, and we were ready to play. Uh, we didn't do these push-ups, sit-ups, calisthenics, and all this stuff. We got on the ball right away. And uh, so that's kind of a skill warm-up. Yeah, sounds more fun than push-ups. It's uh, way better. Um, how do you know if a, a practice was productive? Well, I, you know, at the end of a practice, I would ask my players, they keep a journal, and I would ask them to take three minutes and just, you know, go think about how practice went. Did they make progress? Uh, did they stay on task? What was their focus level? What was their energy level? What was their intensity level? And all of a sudden, they start to understand, wow, if I have better focus, if I have better attention to detail, uh, I start to understand um, if I had a good practice and if I made progress ultimately. And the more people that felt like that, the more I felt like hey, we had a good practice because it's about these people. It's not about me. Feelings come and go. You know, I, you have players come in and go, hey, well, I feel like I didn't, you know, I feel like I was great. I feel, well, let's watch the film and let's go over Wait a minute. Look, you made some changes here. We, hey, look at that. And then there's the stats that go along with it. But, uh, I, you know, I remember with Courtney one year, um, I think we turned the corner at Washington when they understood what really was a good practice. And, uh, and then all of a sudden we started having consecutive good practices and, uh, and, uh, and game days were better. Uh, just as aside, um, you're talking about Courtney Thompson. I'm curious in the recruiting process. I mean, I, I wasn't coaching or recruiting at that time, but my guess is she didn't stand out from a physical standpoint. So what, you know, why did you recruit someone like Courtney? Uh, well, <clears throat> she did stand out. Um, 
you know, I, I, I never, I think it's about being really great at volleyball, having a great skill level. I never thought it was about how big you are, how fast you are. You know, you have to meet a threshold physically for sure. Court met that threshold. I just felt like she had all the intangibles and the drive and the desire and, uh, wasn't afraid to push her limits, uh, wasn't afraid to make errors, didn't care what people thought about her, um, and she'd bring it every day. So I felt like she could be the best in the world. I, I never labeled her, or looked at her a certain way. I said, hey, we're in the gym, let's go. And she wanted to go harder than I wanted to go. Uh, which is kind of a cool thing, but yeah, I, 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 first time I saw her, I wanted her. <laughs> awesome. Then what about in the uh, opposite situation, say your investment as a coach, you feel like, you know, you're all in, you're doing everything you can, but you're working with an athlete who doesn't share the same investment or drive. What do you recommend? Well, that's, you know, I, I think today the kids are a little different. And so I found myself, writing more notes on the board in terms of motivation. Uh, there's more distractions in the world for these kids, uh, my own daughters included, who are soccer players. Uh, I talked to them a little bit about that, but uh, you know, that's part of coaching. You know, you're trying to instill in them a commitment level. I would ask the kids at the beginning of the year to define commitment and after this group became a team, and you guys know not every group becomes a team, and they started thinking like a team, uh, they had a much different definition in terms of commitment at the end of the year. And then that commitment got, uh, you know, it, deeper and deeper. And, uh, and today, when life gets hard, people bail. And, uh, and you want to teach kids not to bail and, uh, and may be committed to what they're doing, not when it's easy, but when it's hard. And uh, so I think that's, part of, that's more a part of coaching today. And is there, there any um, things you've done, say, uh, I don't know, I guess in one-on-one -on -one meetings or any, any, anything that you've seen to raise someone's motivation level? Yeah. Is that Billy or John? That's uh, John. John, uh, yeah, I, you know, I'm a big, I think the brain is powerful, um, you know, and uh, I think, you know, the mind is the athlete, the body is simply the mean. And if we, if we could, you know, if, I don't know, if we told ourselves mentally we could do it, we could do some things, uh, you know, but most people, the average person thinks about 60 thoughts a day, 60,000 thoughts a day, and 90% uh, of them are negative. You can't train like that. You can't learn like that. You can't live like that. And, and I don't want to coach people like that. And so those, those thoughts limit you. Um, I sit down with kids all the time, my own daughters, and I ask them, where are you going? You know, what do you want to be? Uh, you know, what's your goal in life? Are you on the right path? And then I want them to think about things the right way and that they control most of the stuff that's in front of them. They really do. Um, and so I just want to get these kids thinking about the right things and give them opportunities. But most kids are good kids. Uh, you know, 
I, you, you read about these knuckleheads in the paper, but you know, you read about a few of them, but most of them want to learn. I, I got to do a little bit of stuff. I got invited by a friend that's in the NFL and he's a defensive coordinator. I was blown away at the professionalism and these guys that would listen at the highest level, you know, not just hear stuff. They were locked in listening. And, uh, and, and you know how it is. They know some stuff, but knowing is the easy part. They've got to do this stuff. And it's the same thing I'm telling my kids, you know, at some point, knowing is not enough. They must apply, you know, willing is not enough. They must do. And so if you can educate them and teach them, you can change their hearts and uh, you can get them thinking and doing things. You know, uh, the difference between thinking about things and then doing things, we all think about doing good things, but doing things is huge. And so, uh, you know, you just got to talk to them and, and every person has different needs. And so you treat them based on their needs, but you got to be honest with them. You got to push them. You, you got to have a safe environment where they can, they can lean on you and they can trust you and they can ask for help and they're not afraid. Uh, and, uh, and that's another part of society today. You know, these, whenever we put something on the line and it's really important to us, uh, you know, it, it kind of screws us up and, uh, you got to learn how to play loose and you got to learn how to, uh, maximize your abilities, I think. So you said every kid has different needs. How, how do you discover that? How do you figure out what, what do they need? Well, I think the greatest coaches in the world that I've seen, they pay such close attention to their kids, they know how to help them. You know, that's the first thing I ever learned from McGowan was, hey, Jim, it's not your pace. It's the pace of the learner that's the issue. So get over your deal and he said, get into their deal. And he was right. You know, uh, this isn't you, me, you know, uh, Billy, we, we had, you know, you guys are probably still playing, but uh, it's their turn. We had our day. Now we must invest in them. And uh, if we do that, we're going to learn a lot about it, how they walk into practice, how they're interacting with their teammates. You, 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 we're studying behavior, and you can tell when they're on, they're off, they're happy, they're sad, and uh, and you, you know, you know how to kind of get to them. How do you use that pace of the learner in your practice planning? Um, is it just with who you give what feedback to, or do you set up the practice plan and the drills based on the average of the team needs? Well, we have big rocks. Here are the things that we need to get in place as a group. And then we have little rocks where each person can contribute to getting those things in place. They have different roles. You know, that's how you become a team. You know, there are duties and there are responsibilities. There are roles. And so you have to understand your role in this group and do your job and get better at your job. And then people, the way you do your job, people are going to respect you. And then at some point, because you do it with some consistency, they're going to trust you. And that's how you start developing a team. But you do it with individuals. So you're paying attention to these individuals and you're developing individuals. And they got to learn how to do their jobs. And 
you know, because they're on this team, uh, you know, not because they like you or they're, it doesn't matter. You're on this team, you have a job to do. Here are the responsibilities. And if you're irresponsible, then someone else has to pick up that irresponsibility and it's really tough for them to do their job. So, you know, you start to understand those things as you go and everybody, you guys, understands we all have issues and we're trying to solve these issues and get better and their issues aren't the coach's issues. So they learn to come to the coaches and ask for help and you give them help and they start to self-regulate and you can push the hell out of them if you care about them. And people want to be pushed. They want their coaches to believe that you can go places they don't even know about. And, uh, and it's kind of a cool thing when you see that smile on their face and they're doing things they didn't know they could do. Thank you for listening to part one. Come back next week for part two of this great discussion with Jim McLaughlin on Coach Your Brains Out by Gold Medal Squared.